This is the Gartner Futures Lab podcast. Welcome to Gartner Futures Lab. I'm your host, Marty Resnick, and today we are talking about disruptions with our special guest, Distinguished Vice President, Analyst, and Gartner Fellow, and co-lead of the Futures Lab, Daryl Plummer. To get started, Daryl, would you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, thank you, Marty. Really, really happy to be here. Glad you were here having me on it. I, you know, I've been in Gartner for a long time, and um, the Futures Lab is a place that I'm grateful to be a part of because it gives me the opportunity to play with the future, as most of us should be doing. The Futures Lab allows me to look ahead, and in my entire career in Gartner, looking ahead has been a banner of what I like doing. And so we do that as best we can in ways that, that customers can take away uh, and figure out how to do it for themselves. So thank you for having me to talk about this because we've got a lot to talk about. So our theme today is disruptions, and that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Can you just uh, give the Daryl Plummer definition of disruption? Oh, sure. The, the definition of disruption is an interesting one because you know, different people use it in different ways, and, and we, we don't necessarily try to stop them from doing that, but we try to put a frame around disruption that can be more useful in a consistent way. Uh, and for that reason, we, we say that disruption represents a fundamental shift. Uh, a fundamental shift being, you know, that it changes whatever is being disrupted uh, in, in fundamental ways and it, and it doesn't change back on its own. It, it only changes back if it's disrupted again in the future. Now, we separate that from things like features added to a, a system where you keep adding new capabilities, fads, which are very exciting, you know, things that might ha- happen worldwide, but they go away pretty quickly. Uh, and true disruptions, which once the fundamental shift happens, the disruption continues on. Um, so when we talk about that, the, the example I use all the time is because everybody knows it and it always will be true is that fundamental shift from broadcast television uh, to streaming video and audio. Certainly, I remember when I was a kid, we only had three channels back in the Stone Age. Uh, but the idea was if you wanted to watch a show, you, you had to be home that night when it was going to be on and you had to watch it or you missed it for that airing. As we moved over to streaming, now you can watch anything you want. You binge watch the whole season and then watch the entire thing over a weekend. Uh, you also um, realize that the producers of the content have changed. The kind of content they, they, they produce has changed. The frequency of content, the amount, all of these things have fundamentally shifted the way we view uh, and enjoy video and audio entertainment. And that is what we're really trying to seek with these fundamental shifts. I mean, it seems obvious we can, we can look back in the past and say, okay, broadcast television to streaming was the disruption. I'm curious when you're living in the midst of it, how do you identify a disruption? Well, typically, people have a hard time seeing disruption coming before it happens and and even knowing they're in the midst of one because things sometimes change fairly gradually. Uh, certainly, we, we, we can have change that doesn't seem like a disruption at first, but when you look back on it, it's a bigger change than you might have imagined. Uh, the way that we actually uh, look for disruptions is we try to make people more aware of what's going on around them. You know, so first and foremost, we have something called an assumptions challenge. The assumptions challenge is the notion that you have to challenge the basic assumptions on which you run your business or your life. Uh, because if you don't, you keep assuming those things are still real, even though they've changed. And if you challenge them and you start to see those changes, you might be realizing that, whoa, maybe something bigger is going on. 
The second thing is when you're in the middle of a disruption, um, you have to start looking for signals that kind of show, hey, you know, there's something happening here that is bigger than than the moment. That might be an economic shift. It, it might be, um, you know, just a, a behavioral shift in groups of people. It might might be even a legal or a political shift that you're seeing are happening. And then you have to expand that to put it in the context of what is being changed, right? When you look at these disruptions, you say, okay, are the markets shifting? Are the customers shifting price points? Or even, um, you know, the, the the idea of the products that are being being delivered shifting in a major way. All these give you little hints that can tell you that you may be in the middle of a disruption. And even that is not always a surefire thing. So you have to be on the lookout constantly or you might just miss them. So when we look at disruptions, can you think of a, a recent disruption and what are some of the early signals or stages that you're seeing that that makes you think it's a disruption right now? Well, you know, it's interesting because I look back and I usually put them in comparison to things that have happened in the past. But clearly today, the, the notion of generative AI, I see as a disruption. We also have this concept of a disruption catalyst, something that happened that made everybody aware of the, the disruption uh, beginning. Uh, it's like a giant boulder falling into a quiet lake in the mountains. It splashes big and everybody's head turns and sees a splash. Um, you know, the thing is that the splash dies down quickly, but there are ripples or waves that radiate out from the splash point. They, those can be more destructive than the original splash uh, because they can they can last longer and they, they go over a wider area uh, and they actually begin to, you know, change the, the shore of the lake or swamp docks or, or boats or whatever if they're big enough. So what we look for is we look for these things that are generating these waves. Now, in the current world, generative AI has certainly, you know, generated a lot of waves. Of course, the splash point in this case was ChatGPT. Many would call that in itself a disruption, and certainly it has disrupted our thinking in big ways. But generative AI is behind it. It's the thing that is showing all the ripples out into different ways of using a creative generative facility to increase productivity, to, re to remove the burden of doing certain tasks. And, and that is one of the biggest disruptions we've seen in the history of humankind, potentially. Uh, so we have to actually watch it carefully. If we go back a little bit, you might remember we were using, I was using smartphones back in the 90s. You know, we had the old HP you know, devices. We had the, the handhelds of the Newtons from Apple and things like that. Those things were interesting back then, but they didn't constitute disruption because they were just toys. We we're playing with them as toys. It didn't really change much of how we did everything. But as mobile smartphones became smartphones and those smartphones got better and better, uh, we began to see that there would be a disruption to the way that people engaged with technology. And that disruption is played out. How people are engaged with how they get applications, how they listen to music, how they get directions. I, I remember when you used to buy a car and you'd have to decide, do I buy one with a navigation system or I don't? Well, if you're buying a car with a nav system built in today, it's kind of silly because you've got a nav system in your hand. So the, the phone, the mobile phone was a disruption that really pushed things uh, to a new level for many people with technology. And I'll give you one more. Um, you know, when you start thinking about disruption, we don't always think about uh, disruption in the, the societal world. But it, it, over the last 10 years, we have seen a major shift in the way that social media has disrupted society. And it's caused a lot of political divide. It's caused, you know, communities to, to split up and fracture. And it's allowed people to sort of sit in their own camps, believing what they want to believe and being reinforced by others who share those beliefs. This has been a disruption to the way that we actually interact as human beings and the way that our systems operate because of it. So are you primarily focused on technology disruptions? I know you just talked about one that's not technology specific, but I mean, in your published research and your focus on disruptions at Gartner, is it mostly on the technology side? More often than not, we wind up talking about a technology because the technology is usually at the foundation you know, of that disruption catalyst or the disruption itself. But 
the disruptions we talk about are not just technological in nature. Uh, we talk about them over business, society, uh, technology, uh, economics, four major areas in which we talk about disruption. I think that aligns fairly well with our tapestry research that's gone on uh, as well, because there are a lot of different areas where you can look at this kind of thing. So no, it's not just technology, uh, but it often leans in that direction. One of your signature works here at Gartner is Seven Disruptions. Can you uh, give us an overview of what that is and where that came from? Oh, sure. The, the Seven Disruptions presentation in our research note came from the idea that Gartner tends to talk about trends a lot, and we tend to, to predict the future a lot. But we don't talk about as much those fundamental shifts. We didn't talk about how things were going to just change the playing field so that either people didn't start, companies need to start over. And we realized that there was a way of beginning to get to those. We, we In our symposia series, we have signature series presentations that we did. And the first time it was done, the, the seven disruptions was a follow-on signature presentation. You know, it was one of those presentations we wanted to highlight to say, hey, something's going on that you might not be aware of and you really need to be aware of it. So we created that and we picked seven disruptions because um, seven was more interesting than 10. Everybody always picks 10. And we picked seven because we thought if we had to narrow the focus a little bit, we might get more aligned on interesting things. So the idea behind that is we canvas research looking for sort of new thoughts that, that go outside the lines a bit uh, and see whether they actually represent disruption. A couple of years ago, we actually aligned that presentation with our Maverick research. And I know, Marty, you've done a lot of that research and you've done a lot of seven disruptions because we align those things. The Maverick thinking is where disruptions should be seen first. So it's another way of telling when the disruption is happening. Is there someone saying something Maverick about it? Uh, so we align with that. But we also, we wound up having a cohort of people who were working on this idea of disruption in the digital age. And how do you actually recognize, prioritize, and respond to it? So that presentation was a way to get that framework of thinking about disruption. It includes things like our disruption scale for measuring the impact of a disruption. It includes five styles of digital disruption, five different ways disruption happens. It includes disruption vectors, seeing if you start from a catalyst and go out over the years, what are the most critical things that are secondary effect, those ripples that radiate out from the splash zone, how that are going to change the world as well. Um, so we, we had to have a place to pull all that together and to keep getting it out there to customers. And the seven disruptions uh, has turned out to be the, the most premier recognizable piece about that. Well, let's talk about some of those disruptions. And, you know, number one in the report is one near and dear to me, which is virtual reality replacing reality would fundamentally change work and collaboration experiences. Is that talking about metaverse or what type of virtual reality experiences are we talking about here? When we talk about virtual reality versus, you know, actual reality, if you will, um, we, we're, we're more talking about the metaverse than anything else. And the reason why is because in order to actually have a credible virtual experience, you, you've got to be able to support a lot of different kinds of systems, you know, inherent in what people do and what businesses do. Oftentimes people think of the metaverse as only virtual reality, you know, the VR goggles and now I'm in the metaverse, everything's fine. Well, sure, that's cool. But there, there are payment systems, there are organizational systems, there are, you know, systems of communication and, and systems of exchange for businesses that need to be uh, replicated in a virtual sense um, to work uh, quite well. So yes, we're talking about a, a full-featured metaverse that is there. And the point of the disruption was that we weren't going to be able to just sit back and replicate exactly what we do in the exact same way in the physical world, but only in a virtual space. We had to reimagine what we do in that virtual space, you know, like collaborative experiences in the workplace. We have to reimagine that, not just sit every round, everyone around a virtual conference table and virtual conference chairs. 
So yes, we're talking mostly about the metaverse and we're talking about reimagining what a world like that could look like in a fulsome manner, not just through those AR and VR goggles, but across the spectrum of things that we need to do. All right. And graphene, graphene replacing silicon. Really? Is that, is that really going to happen? Yeah. There's the, the, the tricky question, right? It's, it's a question of whether or not a technology shift gets to where it replaces something else completely enough to be considered to have actually done it. Like, for instance, did client-server computing replace mainframes? Did the internet replace mainframes? Well, if you argue from different perspectives that, you know, the mainframes are still here, so they weren't really replaced. But by and large, you know, that we've shifted from one mode of compute to another. And with the technologies associated with graphene versus you know, traditional silicon-based chips, we are seeing a shift. The question ultimately will be, will it get replaced by graphene or maybe something like borophene? Graphene is, is based on, you know, a, a one atom thick, you know, representation of a carbon atom, whereas borophene uses a borophene atom, a borine atom. And if you change the, the atoms, you get different qualities. So the basic idea here is that graphene is a material that handles heat and cold much better than, you know, the, the traditional silicon we use to, to build chips. And one of the defining factors of, of silicon being able to expand in its ability to perform is how many transistors can you get onto a chip? And of course, transistors generate heat. The chip has to dissipate that or deal with the, the buildup of heat. The graphene does that better. And because it does it better, we can have more transistors on the chip. Thus, the chips get faster. Thus, Moore's law can continue. So we're, we're talking about that notion of wanting to be able to replace the traditional silicon chips with uh, something made of a new material. Now, we're seeing these nanochip technologies starting to come along. As I mentioned, borophenes out there. There are new computing models, uh, you know, such as quantum computing for optimization that may make us feel like we don't need to replace silicon chips with graphene. Uh, but graphene has greater uses beyond just chip manufacturing. It, it's for, you know, higher quality clothing, bulletproof clothing. It's for battery technology that's very fast to recharge and lasts a lot longer. A lot of uses for it. So my answer to the question is that it may wind up being trumped by something else. It may wind up being displaced by something else before it gets cheap enough and fast enough to create graphene to actually replace silicon as our standard mode of operation for chips. It's a little difficult thing to answer. Will it retake place it? Well, just like client-server and the internet replaced mainframes, it will have that kind of an impact. Fair enough. A couple of years ago, I wrote a maverick piece on the digital human economy, and I was thrilled to see that it made the list of seven disruptions this year. Can you describe what it is and how it made that transition from maverick to a disruption? Well, the digital human economy work is quite forward-looking and, and quite disruptive in nature. And the most interesting thing about it that brought it to, to my attention when you were working on it is, and it's a lot closer to now than most people give it credit for. And this is what, what was interesting, because when you say something, you know, there are, there are indicators that are showing it's closer than most people think, it's good. And the, the report, you know, the, the presentation on seven disruptions is called Seven Disruptions You Might Not See Coming. It doesn't assume that you don't know about it. It assumes you may have heard about it, but you don't realize how close it is. So this work was perfect for that. And as Maverick work, it was outside the lines of normal research. And it postulated a world where human characteristic can be encoded in digital mean me mechanism. So whether it be a call center operator or an attendant, uh, you know, at a gate or, a, you know, a, even a, a lawyer or a legal assistant, we can encode essentially the characteristics of those that work into a digital mechanism. Now, that, that could include embedded technologies. It could include you being the originator of the, the research. Uh, you know, may have a broader sense of it, but, you know, there, in my mind, it includes things like the human-machine equation coming closer and closer together. Uh, and as that equation comes closer and closer together, we have to ask, how far does it go? 
Do we, you know, interface technology with the human brain uh, and exchange information that way, exchange control of environments that way? Uh, do we, you know, mimic what human beings can do? And I know recently, Marty, you've been talking a lot about encoding a human personality or persona. Uh, and we've seen that you can now talk to Albert Einstein online and get responses, you know, like he would have given. And if we can now encode ourselves, we can save ourselves for future work or we can duplicate ourselves and do more. And as you go in that direction, this this falls right in line with the kind of disruptions we're looking for because it will disrupt so many different aspects of our lives and so many different markets that we actually support. And I've always looked at digital humans as kind of a output or a result of taking metaverse and generative AI and kind of bringing them together, of course, with other technologies and disruptions. So I'm curious, would digital humans be a ripple of one of those things or does it become its own disruption? I, I think it starts as a ripple from three things, actually. One of them is AI generative AI in particular. Uh, the second one is metaverse. And the third one is human machine interfaces, advances in human machine interfaces. One of the first uh, seven disruptions presentations we did had in it the idea of the human machine interface, where we talked about uh, shunts that could be used to send a signal from the brain across a broken uh, segment of a human spine to complete the circuit and allow a human to, to walk as human beings normally do. This is kind of an interfacing with the brain. Uh, I think it was about 19, 2006 that IBM patented a chip to connect you know, silicon with uh, human brain neurons. We have the ability, for instance, now to basically take images out of the brain and print them on a piece of paper. And they look creepy still. Uh, years later, they still look creepy, but you can tell what they are. So this human-machine interface plus the metaverse plus generative AI really puts us in a place where we have to start asking, how fast is this going to hit us? There's another piece to this, though, that most people don't think about. When you have these, you know, digital humans, essentially, you have to start asking yourself, how much and when will you start treating them more like real humans? We could talk about hiring and firing a digital human as an employee of a company. Can you hire or fire a machine? Does it have the rights necessary? Does, do the laws apply to it? Uh, well, those are questions we'll have to answer to be able to deal with this. But when those technological capabilities come to a point, as they, begin, they are, those questions become much, much more critical to answer now. So what point do you answer those questions? Is it now? Is it when we're in the midst of it? Is it the first lawsuit that comes out is going to force us to address these things? I mean, when do you start dealing with those kind of questions? We start dealing with the questions, how to change the laws and, and the rights and so forth when we get in trouble. That's my experience is that human beings tend to change when we get in trouble. So what, what will likely happen is someone will create a digital human uh, technology that is revolutionary. It will be used in circumstances where that person or company will have to either sue or will have to, to go after legal means to say, hey, I have the right to do this. This company has the right to exist. These capabilities are there. And then we'll start dealing with it. It's, it's just like generative AI. We've been talking about AI for, you know, for decades. And yet here comes ChatGPT and all of a sudden everything's up in the air and everybody's asking, wait a minute, well, what about, what about responsibility? What about IP rights and so forth? You mean you didn't think about that before? Usually we wait until it, we're in it before we actually do something about it. And really when we're in trouble. All right. I could talk to you about digital humans all day, but I got a few more disruptions to focus on disposable tech. What in the world is that? That's one of the ones that gets most interest from our, our CIO or IT-oriented listeners. And the reason why is it's one that's more practical and one closer to what they, they're actually doing right now. When we talk about disposable tech, we, we align the notion with the idea that technology is often very similar to fashion in an industry, as an industry. Technology, you know, fashion has, you know, uh, runways and diffusion lines, and it has new seasons, high-end fashion. Uh, and technology is a lot like that. I mean, Steve Jobs has popularized this, right? With, you know, it was kind of like a, a runway 
when he would bring out new technology, you know, and, and the, 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 the technology that Apple generates is often couture. It, it's like that. It's high end lifestyle computing rather than lifeline computing. So they're very similar. And one aspect of fashion is that it comes and goes. You can throw, throw it away after a while and, and go to a new, new line of fashion. And technology is getting that way. And I'm not talking about just throwaway phones or something like that, you know, these disposable phones. I'm also talking about software. And in the software world, we have been building for now at least 30 years these composable uh, systems. We started with objects and then object linking and embedding. And, uh, and we went to services, service-oriented architecture. We moved to a world of composable uh, modular computing. And when you have a world like that, what you do is you build modules. Those modules can be built by anyone, anywhere in the world, as long as they do what they're supposed to do and they're of a certain level of quality and accessible. When you get those modules, you can put them together quickly and in different configurations to create a larger set of capabilities. So the fact that we can do that means we can now build things faster than ever before. You know, the productivity has gone through the roof on being able to build systems out of composable pieces. And when you can do that, it means you're not so hung up on keeping systems around for decades. The Y2K problem back in the end of the 1900s was because we built systems in the 1970s that we thought would be gone by the 1990s, but they weren't. They were still there. So we had to remediate those systems to make sure that we could hold date ranges long enough for them not to roll back on themselves. Well, here we are again. We're, we're at that point where we're saying systems of technology become legacy as soon as they go into production. But with composable uh, software, they're not legacy because they can be updated quickly. They can be changed at, at, at any time. So that moves us from these systems of record, like those systems that were born to last, and the systems of uh, differentiation, which, which allows us to change them fast and differentiate us from our competitors. And finally, in the systems of innovation, which allows us to be creative and do things we never thought of before. But with the same systems, we just have to swap out the parts. Flying cars, is that still a thing? Oh, you know, flying cars. Here's where I, I get some fun in this presentation because I, you know, I've all my life I was promised a flying car. Dick Tracy promised it to me. George Jetson promised it to me. I realized recently that some of my examples, yeah, some of the audience members don't recognize. So now I say Sky and Paw Patrol are still promising it to our kid. But we, we didn't get a flying car. We got you know, 140 characters on Twitter instead. A little, little bit of a disappointment if you were waiting for that flying car. But along the way, we started seeing some changes happen. And most notable among those changes was the rise of drone technology, electric motors, and the, the interest in building out flying transportation in, con in concert with the laws, regulations, and rules about movement of people around a uh, metropolitan area. So in, in other words, the motors are now safer. You know, if you've got six motors, you know, you're a lot safer if you only need one of them to land and two to fly. Uh, the motors are now are, have a longer battery life. It allows us to move around. And these vehicles, some of them can be autonomously flown, so we don't have to have pilots for every one of them. And we're seeing now investments. In, in a couple of years ago, United Airlines invested $10 million, uh, into Archer Aviation to get their flying taxi service started. So when you, when you can see when a disruption begins to, to take hold, it finds its niche. The niche for flying cars is flying taxi services less than 100 miles range, where you, you drive to a, a local you know field where you can get into one of these things close by. They're not as noisy as jet planes generally, although they do make a lot of noise. That noise only affects you when they're closer to you, not so much farther away. And then you, you, you drive to one, you get in a, a flying taxi, it takes you somewhere, drops you off. That plus cargo handling, you know, logistic are places where these things will take off first. The personal flying car, I'm afraid I'll still be disappointed because I don't want my neighbors flying their personal flying cars around my house, and they probably don't want me doing it around theirs either. Uh, but we're making progress. 
I mean, that's the point, right? At what point do you trust these cars in the air, the drivers, the cars themselves, gravity? There's a lot to that equation. There is a lot to that equation. I, I always wonder, you know, people live in high-rise condos. You want people in a flying car flying past your, you know, your ba- bathroom window? <laughs> you know, that, that, that alone keeps people going, oh, uh, maybe not. So it's going to take a while. All right. If you're up to it, I, I got two more for you. Go for it. Wireless EV charging. I'm assuming EV is electric vehicle. Wireless electric vehicle charging, uh, you know, we have been spending the last 10 years hastily adding charging stations to the downstream energy uh, consumption market. You know, when you look at this, you go to a gas station, you pump up gas in your car, but now you go and they've got 10 or 11 charging stations sitting there. You go to any kind of an event, they've got charging stations in the parking lot, taking up space where my car won't fit anymore because I have to have a gas guzzler. You know, but the idea is that we have built, spent a lot of money on new infrastructure to charge these cars. Even at home, you're, you're plugging them in, you got to have the wire and all that. That could be a pain because a lot of times you're not near a charging station. We still don't have wide enough proliferation of those charging stations to make people comfortable about driving long distances where those stations are not. Now, when we get into the wireless notion, what we're saying is that we can use a charging plate that's on the ground. And if you park your car over it, it's close enough to that the battery in that car to actually charge it wirelessly. And not only that, but we're using you know, something called quasi-dynamic charging, which allows batteries to charge while in use or to be charged before completely you know, being depleted very rapidly over and over and over again. These notions make it more and more possible for us to say, hey, we're going to get one day to that place where you're stuck in traffic and you're running low on battery power and you can actually sip power from a car next to you in traffic. Well, hopefully you get permission before you do that. But if we could do that, that would be a wonderful thing. We're sharing power across a traffic grid. Uh, but you've got to be really close today to do that. It just doesn't work. So we're starting to shift that spend of money away from the wired charging stations into charge wireless stations. Even the highways themselves could have charging plates built in at stop signs or in, you know, in parking lots and certainly in your garage floor at home. There's a lot of, of potential with wireless charging if we get them rolling for people because uh, they, they really don't want the wire. And it's like my stereo system. The wires are the most annoying thing. If I could get rid of them, I would. All right. Decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs, how do they fit into the disruptions? Decentralized autonomous organization is a concept that is kind of difficult for most people to wrap their heads around. It's a concept that's related, of course, to the metaverse, related to the Web3, the idea uh, that the kind of organizational structures that we normally use are generally hierarchical. You start with a boss, CEO, and it it rolls downhill from there. Uh, the thing, though, is that they, they those kind of models depend on a control point, a strategic and tactical control point where one entity or a small group of entities owns the control of the whole thing. Uh, now, now that's not going to go away completely, but the decentralized organization uses a model that's more flat. It, it's based generally on blockchain technology. And in that model, you have a couple of things that are important. One is you have members who can buy into a, a, a decentralized organization. And when you buy in, you get a vote. Your vote counts just like anyone else's. You want more votes, you buy in more. Of course, if someone buys up the whole thing, then they're in control again. So like I said, the hierarchical nature doesn't necessarily go away. But the benefit is when you have a lot of different voting members who have a vested interest in what's going on. So for instance, a vending machine that needs to be restocked, resupplied, can be resupplied from many different suppliers, but they may need to all conform to a given price point for a set of vending machines in a given city or a given country. Uh, And they all may need to be able to change their pricing at any given time, but according to the rules that the group puts in place. In a decentralized organization, you can look at this as a way for general contractors to bring subcontracts together for that matter, where a decentralized organization says, all right, you've got the right to vote. Now, what are we voting on? We're voting on the rules of how we exchange business. 
So the rules for how much something costs, the rules for when you get to resupply, the rules for you know wh which kind of suppliers are even allowed to, to be a, a manufacturer of the supply that you want. And those rules are encoded in something called a smart contract. The smart contract is a piece of software that executes when certain events become true. So it's event-driven and software-driven. This, this forces a programmable economy because now all those business transactions, all those organizational transactions happen based on when certain events come true. We all voted to, to resupply on this day. That's an event. The event happens. Now the contract executes and it tells the suppliers what the price point is and when to send the supply. So a decentralized autonomous organization is based on that basic set of fundamental principles. The best example of it in the world is Ethereum. You know, I know most people think about Ethereum in terms of cryptocurrencies, but it is blockchain based and it is a decentralized organization. They've actually gone through some, some crisis points where they've come out with a new version of it that's safer uh, so people can't hack it or mess up the decentralized environment. And we just need to see more acceptance for this, more buy-in to a peer-to-peer -peer relationship. I'll give you one last example on that, which is an escrow fund. We all know how those works, right? You want to exchange money with a lender or a buyer. They have to, you know, they have to actually put up the, the pieces that they need to put up. I put up the house, you put up the money, hold it in escrow. You know, when the insurance comes through, then we transfer the money for the house. That's usually done by a person or a people-oriented process. With a smart contract in a decentralized organization, you can have different realtors, different customers, different home builders, different lenders, different underwriters, and different insurance companies all be voting members in this environment. And when they all vote for something to happen, okay, the money's there. When the money comes in, transfer license or deed of the house to Daryl Plummer. Uh, these kind of decentralized organizations can work fast, efficient, and very effective in, in a world that supports. All right. We talked about seven disruptions, disposable tech, graphene replaces silicon, wireless electric vehicle charging, flying cars, digital human economy, DAOs, and metaverse work experiences. Going to put you on the spot. What are some of the other disruptions you're looking at right now? Oh, wow, on the spot, you know, other disruptions that, that we're thinking about right now. One of them is interesting because it's an overlap. It's a combinatorial effect. The disruption brought about by combining two disruptions. The two in particular that come to mind are generative AI and quantum computing. When you start thinking about quantum physics and quantum computing and generative AI, uh, we're likely to see some pretty nice leaps in, in capability because those two things come together. Quantum computing is great for optimization of problems and solving those problems. And letting generative AI use that kind of facility is, is an amazing notion. It's an interesting disruption because it's different. It's not one technology, it's a combination of technology. Another one that I'm looking at right now is actually associated with uh, society. The notion of a geopolitical disruption across the world uh, that comes, up, comes about by a need for increased investment in immigration policy. Right now, the investment in immigration policies the world over is pretty low. So we have these policies that allow hundreds of people to die trying to get into a country. We, we see policies that are not satisfactory to most people in most countries. Um, but when we start seeing more money pumped into this, using technology to support it, whether it be drone technology, whether it be AI technology, whether it be you know um, camera technology, to be able to, to track uh, groups of, of migrants from one country to the other, we can begin to save lives. And I, I think this could be disruptive. All right, going to put you on the spot one last time. If you had to leave our listeners with one golden nugget about disruptions, what would it be? The golden nugget about disruptions is encoded in our mantra, recognize, prioritize, and respond. The notion here is that you have to be willing. I think it was Bobby Kennedy that said, some people look at the world the way it is and ask why. I look at the world the way it never was and ask why not. And what I'd ask you to do is be willing to look at the way the world is not at the moment. Don't just get fixated on the way things are or what's possible right now. 
Let's look at what we have today that will make something else possible in the near to midterm future. That's why futures work is important. We have to be willing to look forward in a way that we can say, let's start working now so that when it finally happens, we're there before anybody else. Self-disruption is the most important kind of disruption we can do. And the only way you do that is to be looking forward and making it practical for your world uh, before it becomes practical for everyone else. I love it. Well, I, I really appreciate the time today, Daryl, and thanks for stopping by the Futures Lab. Thanks for having me again, Marty. It's always good to talk to you. Please subscribe and share the episode with your colleagues. Thank you for listening. Gardner Podcasts are a production of Gardner, the world's leading research and advisory company equipping executives across the enterprise with indispensable insight, advice, and tools to achieve their mission-critical priorities. You can learn more at Gartner.com. All content in Gartner Podcasts is owned by Gartner and cannot be repurposed or reproduced without Gartner's consent. Gartner is an impartial, independent analyst of business and technology. This content should not be construed as a Gartner endorsement of any enterprise's product or services. All content provided by other speakers is expressly the views of those speakers and their organizations.